Welcome to the New Life Millbrook Weekly Podcast. We hope you enjoy this message. For more information about this podcast or other resources, please visit nlmillbrook.com. Well, as we get ready to, to dive into today, uh, I want to thank uh, Pastors Alan and Marsha for covering uh, while I was out of town, and I'm excited um, to be back and minister, and we pick up at Acts chapter 8. Um, I will get through about half of it, and the next week we will finish the rest of it. I asked, uh, I told Lauren this morning that we were going to be doing Acts chapter 8, and she said, how far are you going to get? Verse 2. So, uh, appreciate it. Um, but we'll, we'll get past verse 2 today, maybe even verse 3. Um, and, and we'll go, God, we thank you for today. We thank you for we're having a great time uh, finding our way through this book and navigating how it affects our current day life. We just thank you that this is not some archaic text, but something that will bring life to us today. We give you all the praise, glory, and honor in Jesus' name. Amen. Acts chapter 8, we have seen, um, just to recap, uh, a lot of things have happened in the first seven chapters, but notably at the very end of Acts chapter 7, um, Stephen was martyred, um, which means his life was taken from him for a cause of Christ, uh, and it has created a ripple effect. Now, as the church has grown, um, it starts off with about 120 um, in an upper room. The Holy Spirit moves. He does a dramatic explosion of people. Uh, Most estimates are around 10,000 believers at this season of life. 120 to 10,000, pretty quick. Crazy what happens when people allow the Holy Spirit to move in their life. Um, but the, the, the quagmire, if you will, is that they're all located pretty much in central Jerusalem. Uh, while that doesn't sound too horrible as a church business goes, having 10,000 people really close that are all like-minded, it was not exactly what the Holy Spirit communicated through Jesus. Because Jesus says, first in Jerusalem, then Judea, then Samaria, then to the utter ends of the earth. So in Acts chapter 1, they did the first part, Jerusalem. And they liked it, and they kept it. This is what happens a lot of times in my life. Dadgummit, Lauren, maybe it won't get past two. Uh, this is what happens a lot of times in my life, is that God speaks, it illuminates something, and I open the door to step A. Step A goes wonderfully. I'm going to stay in step A as long as I possibly can. But one thing that we have to realize is that in every season, there is supposed to be growth and death. Every season. I know that sounds very anti what we believe as faith people, but that's what happens. Every season, there's a moment to be born and there's a moment to die. And every harvest has sowing, they have growth, they have harvest, they have death, they have sowing, they have growth. There's a cycle that takes place. And what happens a lot of times in my life, and maybe in yours, is that we get comfortable in a season, and then we outlive the season. The season starts to die around us, and we blame God. Or others. Yeah. And the idea here is that God wants you to go and thrive in one season, move to the next season, 
grow, thrive, because every season is meant as a growth container. Have you ever seen those, uh, those plants, or even the fish, if you will, that they grow based on how big their aquarium is? And that's kind of the idea here in your spiritual life, is that God puts you in a safe spot, enough for you to expand, then wants to pick you up, put you into a bigger spot so that you can expand, pick you up, and continuing that process as you grow from grace to grace, from glory to glory. And what happens is God puts 120 in Jerusalem, they grow to 10,000, and they stayed there because they felt more comfortable in the power of numbers than in the faith of moving to another another place. And so what happens is that in Acts chapter 7, we see something take place, which wasn't new, but it was an extreme, and that was persecution of the church. And it says here in verse 1 of chapter 8, Now Saul was consenting to his death, speaking of Stephen, At that time, a great persecution arose against the church, which was at Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. So let's back this verse up for a second. It says, now Saul was consenting to his death. Now, Saul, meaning consenting to his death, this is definitely Saul of Tarsus, who later on is identified as Paul, who later on in life writes the majority of the New Testament, who spreads the gospel further and to more people than anybody else. But at this season, he is not a good guy. Good people don't necessarily always produce great results. And bad people don't necessarily always stay in the spot that they're in. This is one of the big reasons why we look at people who are against the move of God, who are against our beliefs, who are against, and you can look at them with a smile on your face because they very well may be a Saul today but could be a Paul tomorrow. But what we seem to want to do is to take the people that don't look like us, believe like us, walk like us, and demonize them until they can reach our level. But you weren't always at this level, and neither was the Apostle Paul at this season of life. He was Saul, and he was very famous in this season, and he was serving, as we've talked about, under one of the most famous rabbis at this time. And, and, and I would say that he was definitely, and if not probable, at the moment where Stephen was getting voted on to be executed and to be part of that execution. In Philippians 3.6, Paul says of his life before Jesus that he was so zealous in his religious faith that he persecuted, that he persecuted the church. And he uses this word consenting. Paul, Saul was consenting unto his death. And this describes his attitude, and in, in English it's probably not good enough to, to use this word because uh, some ideas of consenting um, is, is to be just, I mean, it's okay, I guess. But in this case right now, this word that is being used in the Greek is not to be whatever, just do whatever. It, my daughter yesterday goes, hey, Dad, can I, can I look at Sheen which, you know, to, to get some clothes? To which I said, it's, it's pointless, you don't have any money. And then she kept pestering me to get online. So I said, whatever. Knowing she can't bind, I consented for her to look. This verse is, I am not just consenting, but I approved and I am pleased with the results. 
Those are two different things. One is just do what you want to do. The other one is I back it with everything I have. Paul wasn't just okay with it, but he was pleased with the persecution of the church. And in life, some people are reluctant persecutors. Saul was not one of these people. He took pleasure in attacking Christians. Why? Why do you magnify that? Because later on, when we see Paul, we feel like we can't measure up and our past is really bad. So you need to understand that you most likely never took pleasure in watching Christians die. He wasn't satisfied to persecute them in Jerusalem. He wanted to annihilate them wherever they went. In the next few chapters, you're going to see that with Paul, with Saul, is that he went after them with pleasure and a smile on his face. And this is where we get really weird. Because Paul thought he was do Saul thought he was doing the work of God. He walked this life thinking he was doing God's business. You know, this is why we have to love people unconditionally because we don't know what's going on on their heart. It doesn't make the actions okay. You know, there's a religion right now that goes around thinking they're doing God's business as they behead other people who don't believe with them. They are thinking they are doing what God wants them to do. And one thing that we have to realize is no matter what somebody's name is, their background, or what's happening in their actions, God can turn anyone on his side at any given moment. Never discredit the one who is attacking you today because they very well may be backing you up tomorrow. And, 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 and as we know, Paul, Saul of Tarsus, uh, who is known by his Roman name later on, Paul uh, came later on to deeply regret what was going on. In 1 Corinthians 1, uh, 15, it says this, is that for I am the least of the apostles, I am not worthy even to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. Acts 26 says this, and, and I punished them often in every synagogue and compelled them, this is something new to me, this verse right here, compelled them to blaspheme and being exceedingly enraged against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. Think about that. Uh, Paul here now, later on in life, looks back 20 years ago and goes, how wicked I was. How, how messed up I was. He looks back at his previous life and thinks about those things. Can I tell you, sin may be pleasurable for a season, but there's always a moment of, reconcil of, of, of when you have to come back home and realize what's taken place. So Paul sitting back going, there was a season of my life where I persecuted the church. But I didn't just persecute the church. Acts 26 says, and caused them to blaspheme. What would that look like? 
Remember, why did they punish Stephen? They said that he blasphemed against the temple. So Paul, later on, isn't talking about that moment. So how would Paul get them to blaspheme? Let's deny Jesus. This is Saul, Paul, thinking back to this moment in his life where he would take a teenager and put them on their knees, execute their parents, grab a sword and say, if you don't deny Jesus, I'll kill you too. And he would watch them. Fine, Jesus isn't real. He's, he's alive. He, he, he died. He, whatever it is. And he would, with rejoicing, laugh to know that he got them to deny their faith. This is intense. 20 years later, he's being haunted by his memories. And we sit back and we talk about things and, and we talk about guilt and we talk about shame and it's all under the cross. But can I tell you, it is all under the cross, but sometimes between your two ears, it's something that you deal with for a long, long time. This is why we train our children in the way they should go not because we're trying to get them to live under our thumbs, but we don't want them to live their life full of regret. I had a teenager not too long ago. Maybe it was long ago. I've been doing youth ministry for decades. So it all kind of blends in together. Pastor Pete, why doesn't God want me to have fun? Let's talk about it. Great question. Where did you get that information? He doesn't want us to drink. He doesn't want us to have girls. He doesn't want us to smoke weed. He, like every, like all of these, he starts listing out all of the things that to him were fun. And I don't know if you remember, but they were fun. Just me. Fair enough. Back in the day, all of that was fun stuff. Shauna's shaking her head. She was my dealer. It was one of those things that you look back and you laugh and you sit back and we joke. But can I tell you, it's not that God says no because he's just an old, mean God who doesn't want you to have fun. But because he's so wise, he knows that when I'm 15 and 16 and I'm at a party and I'm getting drunk and I wake up and I don't remember what's going on and I have all of this happening and, and there's all of this stuff that's taking place that entails being drunk with a bunch of other people, you live your life with something called regret. And so when God looks at you and says, hey, 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 no, 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 no. It's not because he's saying, no, you can't have fun, but because he wants your life to be so free in the future, you're not stuck to your past. So when we're leaving lives, when we're looking at people and going, don't be like Saul slash Paul, who's 20 years later written the majority of the New Testament, raised himself up from the dead, seen all kinds of miracles, and yet he's still deals with shame. This is why we train our kids. This is why we make them come to church when they don't want to. This is why we say no even when it's easier to say yes. Because we know what regret feels like and we love them enough to say no. No. It says a great persecution arose against the church. In other words, Stephen's death was just the beginning and the floodgates of persecution are now open against the church. It's now hunting season. Before all of this, the apostles were persecuted. 
apostles were beaten, they were lied about, they were arrested. Now, the strategy has shifted from attacking its leadership to leaving the leadership alone and attacking its members. You know, as a pastor, it's, it's, it's easier, and, and, and Pastor Allen can attest to this. And if you've ever been a, a business leader, a military leader, or what, so it's easier for you, at least it is for me, for me to be personally attacked than it is to see somebody beneath me attacked for something we are all doing. Are you with me? I, I, I would hate to, to, to be the leader that sits there and goes, as long as no one's talking about me, it's all okay. Because as a leader, one of the big things that we do is that we take hits that we didn't do <laughs> because we love the people. It's like the mom who a dog is running after the kid and she stands in front of the dog and she, she barricades the kids and she takes the bites so her child doesn't have to. That's what leaders do. Leaders stand in the way of the attacks so that those behind them don't have to take the hits and embrace the, 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 the things. And this is what's happened to the apostles as they're standing there going, give it to me, I'll take the hits, whatever it is that you need to do. And now all of a sudden they're now going after the Paul, the Stevens and the Phillips and everybody else, the, the teenagers, the, the innocent ones, the, the baby ones. And the apostles are standing there and going, we are the ones who caused all of this. Stephen's death, for some, may seem meaningless at first. But let me explain something. That, that even in a so-called pointless death, God takes that small things and creates big momentum from it. No one was immediately brought to the faith at this moment. But what we can see is that when the persecution of the church rose, the converts also rose. One thing that historians can always put, point out is this, is that, that when the persecution of the, tri, uh, the church rises, the proclamation of the gospel equally rises. There's not a, a, a time of history from this moment there to fast forward to Nero, to fast forward to Hitler. And you can't see a moment in history where the church persecution rose. Yeah, it did, but so did the converts. We get men, even, even as recently as uh, from, from Hitler, attacking the church to get people like Bonhoeffer standing up for righteousness when everyone else caved. When, when, when the church of God is persecuted, God's blessing and power on the church is also magnified and the proclamation of the gospel historically has also increased dramatically. The problem that we see in the church is when the gospel is not being persecuted and the gospel is now comfortable, the converts actually decrease versus increase. Put it this way, a greenhouse for the gospel is not in comfort, but in pain. Give me more pain in the church world, watch the, the, the converts rise. Give the church more comfort, watch the converts decrease. 
That's human nature, though. Can anybody tell me, over the past 25 years, if you can, a time they remember the United States being more united than the days and weeks following 9-11? In my entire life, I don't ever remember watching America from the, from the left aisle, from the right aisle, from Democrat to Republican, every single nationality, and even people who weren't actually Americans rising up to unify against a cause. We have never been more unified until we were attacked. And now... We have the most division that I've ever seen in our life with the most prosperous seasons that we've just recently had. Because when the church can't find an enemy in the devil, we find an enemy with each other. We have to have a common enemy that unites us And when we don't have a common enemy that unites us, we grab our swords and we turn on each other and we turn on the unbelievers. This is why it's clearly written out that we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. And the sad part of it all, Dad, is that if we would wake up and realize that you actually are being influenced by the evil one, we would actually realize and wake up and unify around the cause of being lulled to sleep. You may not have a sword at your neck. You may not have your houses being burned right now. But you are being lulled to sleep by the same enemy that would put your thro- a knife to your throat. It's the exact same enemy with a different strategy. But when we're sleeping, we're not in pain. That's why they use anesthesia before surgery. Because when your mind's cut off, you don't feel the pain. And we've been numbed for years. I'll let it go. Since they were scattered through the regions. Now the Christians were forced to do what they had been reluctantly wanting to do, and that is to get the message of Jesus throughout the surrounding regions. The word scattered there, according to James Montgomery Boyce, says this, that there are, 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 are scattered in the idea of making something disappear, like you would take ashes over a ship and just watch it float away and sink into the bottom, or scattered in the context of that there was a, a seed being sown out into a field. And this is the difference, is that the church was scattered, and the enemy was hoping that it would scatter and to disappear into the sea, but actually what the enemy didn't realize is they were being scattered as seed across the world to be sown. Because when persecution happens, you are seed sown across the nation. These Christians weren't scattered to disappear, but scattered to be sown and planted 
Uh, I'll, I'll use this analogy back, something that we saw more recently, and some of you guys can remember this, in, in China, when China was coming against the church, and there was about 10,000, ironically enough, in centralized, located in China, that were believers, and, and the Communist Chinese Party did not like what was going on, and they look at them and go, what are we going to do about these Christians? Who goes, well, they like to gather together, they like to sing songs together, they like to read the Bible together, they like to pray together, then we got it. We'll split them up. We'll go and we'll scatter them across and they can't gather together. And what ends up happening is that they scattered them across. And, and all of a sudden, the, the underground church went from about 10,000 to millions because they moved them across the nation and they can't contain it any longer. People don't realize this, but some certain cities have also identified this same thing with the police department is they find these hot spots that are, are issues with drugs, gang violence, and it seems like what they do is this, is that if they go in and raid, they'll go and arrest a bunch of people, but then they're going to make bail, and those people will then leave that area, and some will go here, and some will go there, and some will go here, and now all of a sudden they just put little embers in different cities and different spots, and now where there wasn't a drug problem, now there is a drug problem, and it watches it grow, so now they've done this idea of let's corral and contain so that it doesn't spread out. Known drug dealers, known issues that take place, they go leave them there, let them kill themselves, because once they get arrested, then they'll leave that area and come to this area. Can I tell you, this is what's happened in the churches, that they, they, they spread them out like roaches, and they repopulated and, 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 and preached the gospel, and now all of a sudden the, the, the doctrine of Jesus Christ has spread throughout China, and now we're seeing the same thing happening in Jerusalem at this moment. And then something crazy happens in verse 2, Lauren. And devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentations over him. This is a cool thing that I didn't know about. I learned this in my studies of, 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 of the book of Acts. This is, I've always thought devout men went to Stephen. These were the apostles, and, and they went and grabbed Stephen. And they, but that's not what the case was, actually. They, they, they didn't. These are actually Jews that went in to mourn over Stephen. There are people in this environment who go, I don't believe in this Jesus, but what they are doing to these people is wrong. In fact, uh, from one commentator says it this way, is that making a lamentation over somebody who has been executed because, uh, who's, who's, been, who's been publicly executed by Jewish law prohibits other people mourning over them. So it was like a double uh, issue where not only are we going to take your life, but no one can cry over your death. And so the fact that these other Jews are coming around going, I can't believe this is what's going on. And we know this is the case because even during the trial, we see that certain people were left out of the vote. And they came rushing in going, what are you doing? How come this is taking place? And they, they cherry-picked who could vote on the execution, and those people who disagreed with what was taking place stood over the dead bodies of Stephen and, and mourned over them. Verse 3. As for Saul, 
he made havoc of the church, entering every house who dragged off men and women, committing them to prison. Therefore, those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. He made havoc. This is an ancient Greek word used uh, to, to describe when a army would break through the gates of a city and it would just be utter chaos of them coming in and pillaging and burning and, and destroying the people. This is what the, the visualization of Paul is that there was peace in the home and then he would just kick down the door and there would be glass breaking and pottery would be shattered and people would be screaming and they're grabbing people by their hair, yanking, just chaos. This is what's taking place here. And, it, you know, he would, uh, the, the, the same word here is used as when a wild animal runs at another animal and shreds its skin apart, like its meat, rips it out from the inside. This is how Paul is described, Saul is described as going in like a wild animal, ripping people apart. I just, I, I look at what is happening under Paul at Saul at this time and going, I understand when he's, he's writing in Corinthians and, and, and walking through shame issues. But here's one thing that we need to understand through this process here is that if Paul, who preached forgiveness more than anybody else, can look back and go, he also is forgiven of these heinous crimes. How much more are you forgiven? How much more are you freed from the sin of your past? See, Paul may have dealt with the scars because he felt he's still a human. Like when you sin and you hurt people, you're still human. You, you hate what has taken place. But in a spiritual level, God has restored Paul, made him a new creature, did mighty works by his hands, and we're watching him walk through this going, this is the type of person that I used to be. And the whole point of this is, is if God could take this ravaged wild animal who attacked God's own children, can't God save you? Can't God restore you? You did stupid things. You made wrong choices. Some were out of ignorance. Some were made willfully. But Paul is saying, God forgave me. God will forgive you. But those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. They weren't assigned. You preach. You plant. You do this. What this is actually meaning is that these are, if I, I can put it this way, unintentional missionaries. They, they didn't wake up with the feeling of a call of God to be a missionary to Samaria or to other parts of the world. They were running for their lives. But instead of allowing the persecution of Paul, of Saul, to destroy who they were, they took it to see themselves as missionaries. Isn't that the kicker? We don't see that today. If I was to tell my kids, hey, don't sit on the couch with the food. Hey, don't hit that pothole with your bike. Hey, don't get food on your clothes. My wife tells me that one. But um, all of a sudden, I'm watching my kids sit on the couch, hit the pothole, and I've got food all over myself. Why? 
Because when we always magnify the obstacle, our eyes gravitate to the obstacle. Instead of me going, hey, sit at the table, hey, right over there, hey, Pete, wear a bib, what happens is that we are always pointing at the wrong. Does that mean that we should never talk about the truth? That's, that's crazy talk. Of course we talk about the truth, but it's how we talk about it that's important. Okay. Out of personal experience, I have watched some of the craziest times in my youth ministry of, of sexual sins arise immediately following sermons about sexual sins. Because when I magnify the no so much, it's like they just can't help. It's like, don't push that button. I gotta push the button. Like they just, you can't help it. Instead, I learned later on, don't magnify the no as much as the benefits of living a pure life. Because when you talk about the peace, when you talk about the joy, when you talk about happiness, and you talk about a long marriage, and not living with regrets, and you have all of these positive things, you're, you're painting a picture of what you should go after instead of painting a picture of the no. As long as we don't magnify the no, we can get them to the yes. And what happens is that the enemy has constantly put before us, look at the obstacle, look at the obstacle, look at the obstacle, look at the obstacle. I tripped over the obstacle. But God's always going, don't, don't focus on the obstacle, focus on the promise. Because if you can focus on the promise, you can hurdle the obstacle. And that's the thing that we've got to learn in this, in this story here is that these men and women were persecuted unto death. That's quite the obstacle. But they hurdled it by going, we're not going to get stuck in woe is me. We're going to go out into all the world and proclaim the gospel. Just give me a minute, and I'll try to get past verse 4. We can share the good news that Christ has done in our lives. And most people don't come to Christ through a professional preacher. The vast majority of Christians don't come to Christ because of an eloquent speech. Or because I hit a home run when I preached a sermon. In fact, church growth has very, very little to do with this guy right here. And what happens in this phase. The, the, the church growth happens when the people out here take the personal responsibility to go into all the world and preach the gospel. But Pete, I don't know the gospel. You don't have to know what 1 Corinthians 15 says. I don't need you to memorize Romans Road. I don't need you to, to talk to me about eschatology or pneumology or sodiology. I don't need any of that to happen. You know what I need, Lauren? I need you to know that God saved you. I need you, Connie, to look up and go, I remember who I was, but Jesus did this in my life. Because no one knows the Bible as well as they know their own personal story. 
And what you need to realize is that I don't need you to quote the Bible. I don't need you to tell me all the details. We can talk doctrine and theology, and we can do all of that one-on-one. All I need from the church is for them to have one big thing. I was lost, and now I'm found. And just explain that. That's it. That's all you got to do. First step to this is this. Realizing I was lost and now I'm found. At any given moment, I should be able to hand every single person a microphone in this place who claims to be a believer and go, hey, give me your testimony in five minutes. Tell me your story. We should all be able to have that one pulled up. Again, I'm not asking for a speech. I'm not asking for you to have some big dissertation. It's just your story. Look back. Where was I 20 years ago, 20 months ago, 20 weeks ago, 20 minutes ago? But now Jesus has done X, Y, and Z. That's what you got to tell. That's the very first thing. I was lost, and now I'm found. It's an undeniable lostness and an undeniable being found. Second thing, part two. Open your mouth and tell somebody. That's it. Well, Pete, what about if I say the wrong thing? What if I miss something? You know what's great about this story, Dad? Romans wasn't written. All Romans, First and Second Corinthians, First and Second Chronicles, uh, uh, Chronicles, uh, First and Second Corinthians, uh, uh, Ephesians, Philippians, everything that points us to salvation has not been written. So, what is it that these people are talking about? Themselves. God changed me. God loved me. What about all the bad things in the world? Yeah, sucks. But God loved me. And if God can love me, and if God can change me, he can love you. That's the story. That's it. When they come up to you and they want to talk about the craziness of the world, and what about the the contradictions in the New Testament, and what about the Apocrypha, and all of those things, be like, I don't know. (laughs) Come talk to Pastor Pete. He may have an answer. But my job is to tell you that you are loved. Unconditionally loved. And come worship with me. Worship the God that loved me. Church, that's your mission this week. Know that you were lost and you are found. Now go tell somebody about it. That's it. Don't worry about everything past uh, Acts chapter 8. Okay? Mind you, even Acts chapter 9 wasn't written yet. (laughs) This is all you need to know. I was lost, and I'm found by a Savior. I was blind. Now I see what's happening. 
I was unlovable, but somebody loved me. We're not going to magnify all of our issues. And if they want to have a, a conversation of craziness, of all the sins and how bad theirs are, I promise you that the first two rows will outdo their stories. Because the third row is really messed up. Uh, but God loved us. Do you believe that today? That's all you got to do. Discipling people, the first step is knowing about me. The second step is having a boldness to talk. That's it. That's all you got to do. I had a conversation this morning with some people. We were talking about churches and unfortunately churches that have shut down and, and churches that have dwindled into nothingness and, and all those things. And I said, you know what's crazy is statistically what we don't see is that recently, in times past, we would see one church shrink while another church increases. And since COVID, we watched one church shrink to nothing and everybody else stayed the same, which means there is a lot of people who used to be a part of something that are no longer a part of something. And I was explaining to them that I had a conversation with a guy not too long ago that goes to a church. He's active in his church. The church has been shut down for two years. Like, I don't really know how active you are. The church has been down for two years. And we're having this conversation, and, and I'm sitting back realizing that people need to be loved back into the kingdom. But can loving somebody into the kingdom isn't being passive. Loving somebody into the kingdom is an action. Actively telling people it's time to get back home. Maybe they don't have a home. This is a great home. That's all you got to do, guys. And if I can be honest, there's no point of me preaching any other topic until this takes place. Because we can have conversations about the rapture and all that fun stuff, but for what? And we can have conversations about deep things of God, but if we can't do the shallow things, there's no point of doing the deep things. So Pete, when are we moving past Acts after 8? When you do Acts after can we get agreement on that? Yes. Amen. God, we thank you that you love these people greatly, that you love all people greatly, that you are a God that is here for us, a God that desires relationship, and a God that could love a Saul into a Paul. You can love me. And I thank you that today is a day that you have aligned us to, to have boldness into your word. Grant us opportunities this week, Holy Spirit, to minister to somebody about our story. Give us opportunities to stand up for righteousness in our, in our world to say, hey, hey, you're not hopeless. Hey, you're not a loser. Hey, you're not unloved. Combat those lies this week with the truth of your love and grace. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. Love you guys greatly. Thank you for listening to our podcast. Have a great week.